Some stones saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul. I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you. I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have family or friends who can't watch Heart of the Matter on television here in Utah, Idaho, and parts of uh, Wyoming, they can go to www.hotm, Heart of the Matter, hotm.tv, and they can watch any of the programs, live streaming video now, or go to the archives and watch any of the past programs uh, at their leisure. I Was a Born Again Mormon is a manuscript now available through uh, PDF download. You just go to hotm.tv, click get the book, and you download the thing and you have it in your hands free uh, anywhere you want, anytime you want. How about joining a weekly verse-by-verse, never-denominational Bible study? Join campus every Sunday either at the U of U or Utah State in the afternoon. Go to www.calvarycampus.com for more information like times and directions. Just received news from Andreas in Norway. That's a guy I've never met. And he's the one who asked years ago if he could take excerpts from the show and put them on YouTube. And he's put more than 500, which is just so awesome. But now all those clips that Andreas did uh, are being translated into Spanish. And, uh, you know, is God great or what? Andreas says that we have an average of a thousand clips watched per day around the world and uh, with over a million viewed on YouTube this year. No, uh, the year of 2009. Amazing. We, I want to thank Andreas and the, the man who speaks very good Spanish. Who, what he does is he lets the English audio and English video come through. And then below, he puts the Spanish translation uh, as a text, like you're watching a foreign film. And his uh, Spanish uh, translation is excellent. So I don't even know his name, but uh, grateful for him. Thank God. And with that, let's have a prayer. Lord, uh, we all need you in our lives in uh, every way possible. So uh, please be with us now. We have um, a staff that is just learning many of the things. This is their first program alone. And so we pray that you'll be with them. Help our technical issues. Help our audience both live here and, uh, and people who are watching uh, all over in different uh, ways. We pray your Holy Spirit will be with us and that I'll be able to communicate things you want and uh, not lose my uh, cool as I uh, try. So we love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Last week, we discussed baptism and talked about how within Mormonism, it is a doctrinal belief that it is required for salvation. In that Mormonism believes that, that their specific brand of baptism is required to enter heaven, Joseph Smith had to sort of figure out what happens to people who die without ever having a chance to hear the LDS version of the gospel and receive the LDS baptism, which is requisite to enter the celestial kingdom. The question of what happens to people who die without water baptism was not only a hot topic from the Christian community that Joseph Smith and his family grew up in, it was a very important topic to Joseph Smith personally. You see, he had an older brother named Alvin, whom the entire family loved, adored, and he was kind of acted as the father of the family much of the time when Joseph's own father was uh, out of the way because of alcohol. And one day Alvin got very sick and died suddenly without having received water baptism. <clears throat> and within a few days of Alvin's death, one ignorant and insensitive preacher came to the Smith home and he announced that Alvin went to hell because he lacked water baptism. Needless to say, the preacher's errant opinion uh, deeply hurt Joseph Smith's mother, who was a very religious woman, and it inflamed young Joseph against all creedal Christianity on earth. Uh, it's hard to blame him. I suggest that young Joseph, smart as a whip, uh, must have kind of said to himself, you know, that preacher, what a jerk. He didn't really make, that doesn't make any sense to me. There must be another solution for this situation. Well, later, as Joseph was wont to do in his life, he provided the solution to the world through a ritual called baptism for the dead, which, unlike some of his other original ideas, does have a support through an errant application of one single passage in the Bible. And let me kind of tell you how all this baptism for the dead stuff works. First, LDS believers um, who qualify through their worthiness go into LDS temples and they do ordinance work on behalf of people who have died. Vicarious works and ordinances for those who have passed on in the spirit world are then completed by living and worthy LDS members who stand what they say they stand in proxy for that deceased person. Where do the LDS get the names of the people that, whose work they do in the temple? Through genealogy. And where the Bible actually says to, quote, not give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which comes in faith, that's in 1 Timothy, the LDS church today houses one of the biggest endless genealogical libraries on earth in order to keep this supposed work going. Uh, now, the works done in the temple for the dead include something that is called an endowment and washings and anointings and sealings and uh, baptisms and priesthood ordinations. And baptisms for the dead, it, that's the first rite that a deceased person will have done on their behalf. They do it in an order, and nothing can be done for a deceased person unless they have the baptism first. So let me give you an example of how this actually works out within a, a ward, an LDS ward. 
let's say there's a guy whose name is uh, Jacobus Fountain Blue, and he was born in France, uh, Paris, France, in um, 1701, and he died in 1756. These things are known about Jacobus. And some diligent LDS genealogists uh, living today discovers this information about Jacobus Fountain Blue, and he or she gets all this information on them and then submits it, Jacobus' name, to an LDS temple. And once that name has been approved and submitted with all the right information, then an LDS person will go in, or persons, and do this work of salvation on their behalf. Well, as I said, the first thing that Jacobus has to have done is a baptism on his behalf. And in the LDS church, while any adult can do this baptism on behalf of Jacobus, the youth, ages 12 and up, are encouraged to step in and get this basic temple work done. It's one of the only things the youth can do in the temple before going through as an adult. Now, it's really quite brilliant because getting dunked over and over and over again is really fun for kids. And so they're 12 years old and they get to go to the temple and their first experience is, you know, it's like a pool party. And you get to get dunked and dunked and you're doing this work and it, it kind of ties you in. So it's very smart. You know, they bring them in in Mormonism and they bring them young. So uh, that was a joke. All right, all right. So for example's sake... Someday after school, an LDS ward is going to say, okay, kids, they've been interviewed by the bishop and found worthy, which is always an interesting thing that goes on in the ward because there's some kids who are honest with the bishop and they said, well, I did do this dirty thing the other day. And the bishop says, oh, you can't do baptisms for the dead. And so while the rest of the group goes and does baptisms for the dead, we already learn ostracization in the world of Mormonism. You either lie and go to the temple or you tell the truth and you don't. And the youth learn that very quickly. So the ones who either lied or who are worthy they get to go in and do these baptisms for the dead and the kids change clothes and they all get in white and they go to the basement of a temple and there they'll find a jacuzzi-like large tub sitting on uh, usually, not in the Washington DC temple, but usually 12 oxen representing the 12 tribes. And somebody, one of those youth, a male, will be baptized in Jacobus's name and uh, once that baptism is over, someone will then take Jacobus's information and it will show, check, he was baptized. Next, and then someone will be uh, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for Jacobus by LDS authority. Then Jacobus will be ordained to the office in the priesthood. Then Jacobus will, uh, somebody else will go through the in, uh, washing and anointing for Jacobus. And then somebody will go through the endowment for Jacobus. And then somebody will go through and be sealed to Jacobus's wife for time and all eternity. And then when all that work is done, the LDS believe that Jacobus who's been waiting in the spirit prison since uh, 1751, uh, will either accept all this work that's been done for him, or he will reject it and be judged accordingly. Now, you might find it interesting what LDS prophet and president Wilford Woodruff said in 1877 about the dead and the temple work that was being done in St. George. He said, quote, and this is in the Journal of Discourses, the dead will be after you. They will seek you after you as they have us here in St. George. They call upon us, knowing that we held the keys and power to redeem them. And speaking to an LDS crowd, Wilford Woodruff continued. This is their president. He said, These dead, the dead said, 
you have the use of the endowment house for a number of years and yet nothing has been done for us. We laid the foundation of the government you now enjoy and we never apostatized from it, but we remain true to it and we're faithful to God. Woodruff goes on, these were the signers of the Declaration of Independence and they waited on me for two days and two nights. I thought it very singular, and notwithstanding so much work had been done, yet nothing had been done for them. The thought never entered my heart from the fact, I suppose, that heretofore our minds were reaching after more intimate friends and relatives. I straightway went to the baptismal font and called upon Brother McAllister to baptize me for the signers of the Declaration of Independence and 50 other eminent men making 100 in all, including John Wesley, who I'm sure appreciated it, Columbus, and others. I then baptized him for every president of the United States, except three. For when their cause is just, somebody will do the work for them. Where Bible-believing Christians trust that the thief on the cross went directly to paradise without the need for water baptism, the LDS reconfigure the Lord's words uh, to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And they impose the idea that the thief had to wait since 33 AD for the LDS rites and rituals to be done on his behalf before he could actually enter his paradisical glory. How important is this work for the dead to the LDS? Where Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead, Joseph Smith Jr. said, quote, the greatest responsibility in this world that God has placed upon us is to seek after our dead. The greatest responsibility in the world that God has placed upon us, the Latter-day Saints, is to seek after our dead. In a world where most of us struggle to sometimes get out of bed, to be kind to our neighbor, to give something charitable to the poor, to forgive and to help, the LDS have the added responsibility of saving everyone who ever lived. Um, this yoke is not easy and this burden is not light. It's intrusive and it's heavy and it's made up by men for a very devious and deceptive purpose. Listen to another more ominous teaching from Mormonism's founder, uh, founding prophet Joseph Smith regarding baptism for the dead. Said he, quote, this doctrine presents in a clear light the wisdom and mercy of God in preparing an ordinance for the salvation of the dead. Being baptized by proxy, their names recorded in heaven, and they judged according to the deeds done in the body. This doctrine was the burden of the scriptures. Now listen to this. Those saints who neglect it in behalf of their deceased relatives do it at the peril of their own salvation. Okay, so here's the rub. First, the LDS are told they must do and uh, many things for their own worthiness and righteousness. And this list is very long, but it doesn't end there. Joseph Smith himself said, uh, Joseph Smith himself said, the most important work for a Mormon to do is the work they do for all the billions, 14 billion people who have died. If neglected, this will place their very salvation in peril. So what must a believing member do? They must do work for the dead. And how do they do work for the dead? By going to the temple. 
the only place that you can do this work for the dead. And what does it take to go to the temple to do this work? More requirements, including paying a full tithe, which that has been determined to be 10% of a member's gross income. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are laden, heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest, peace, ease, and joy. This is not what this system is about. Now, when LDS missionaries knock on a door of an investigator to share the message of Mormonism, they have this really nice method of justifying and presenting this idea of baptism for the dead. And they use a singular Bible passage, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29. And the missionary's method of getting people to believe them is very effective when dealing with undiscerning and unsuspecting people. You see, the missionaries will first teach that the unique practice of baptism for the dead is owned solely by the LDS. We're the only church that does it. Then they'll set up a false premise that everybody must be baptized, flip chart, because Jesus was baptized. Okay, so they set up that false premise. You must be baptized to go to heaven. The LDS do this thing called baptism for the dead. God is fair, and because everybody hasn't been baptized by an LDS holding the authority, there's a system he's developed that works, and it's called baptism for the dead. In fact, Mr. Investigator, will you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 29 and read that for me? So the investigator turns there, and he reads it, and it says this. Else what shall they do? which are baptized for the dead. If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? It's the only reference in all the verses of scripture that talks about this unique and difficult practice. So with the missionaries having placed this pretext in mind, baptism is required to enter heaven. God is fair and has provided a way for all people who haven't heard about this to get into heaven. And the LDS are the only ones who do and teach this concept. The Bible passage about baptism for the dead, which is wholly taken out of thin air, seems to support what the missionaries have said and people believe it. All right. At the LDS Headquarters Visitor Center here in Salt Lake City, there's a plaque outside, and it, at the title it says, Baptism for the Dead, and this is what it says. To give everyone the opportunity for baptism, the Savior established a sacred ordinance which the Apostle Paul referred to as Baptism for the Dead, and they give the reference. Although this ordinance was lost for centuries after the death of the original apostles, it has been restored in time by our Savior himself. Did the Savior establish the sacred ordinance as the LDS claim? Let's take a look and determine if the, if the Bible supports this practice contextually. So as we said in 1 Corinthians 15, 29, it says, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? The first thing to notice about this verse is that baptism for the dead is only mentioned. It's, it's mentioned. It is not actually taught. It's mentioned by Paul. There are all sorts of other things Paul mentions in Scripture that are not taught. 
I mean, we hear about all kinds of things that are, that are not practices of the Christian church. This happens to be one of them. And then given the scanty nature of the evidence being only one verse out of thousand, it is especially important to follow really sound principles of scriptural exegesis, which means how to interpret the scripture by reading what it says, not trying to read into what it says. And there's two basic principles to help you do that. First, we can never read a verse in isolation. It is the calling card for cults to take an isolated verse and use it. And I used this story when I was on my mission in Pennsylvania, and I'm not saying the Amish are a cult, but they said, hey, they took the scripture, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. And so the Amish didn't chop wood, okay? There's a problem when you start doing that because pretty soon you're living a very whacked out religion. We have to look at it contextually. The second thing is unambiguous scriptural passages um, need to be interpreted by scripture. We can't take scripture and let unambiguous or ambiguous scriptural passages uh, determine what is truth. A superficial reading of 1 Corinthians 15, 29 might suggest in isolation that there was a practice called baptism for the dead and that it was part of the Christian church. It's in the New Testament. It's mentioned, must have been done, right? But the whole of scripture of 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul addressing the errant beliefs of a segment of believers who did not believe in the resurrection, okay? Corinth was a wild place and Paul writes to them and says, look it, you guys have come to the point in your faith where you don't even believe in a resurrection. And the fact that Paul mentions in this single passage, mentions baptism for the dead, is no more of an endorsement of his as it being a, an official doctrine than his mentioning to believers in another part of the Bible about eating meat sacrificed to idols. He didn't say, I don't agree with it. We learned from another uh, passage of scripture later on that he did disagree with that. But so he mentioned the eating of idols. He, and, and in that context, he doesn't say which I disagree with. He just mentions it, eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. But we know from the whole of scripture, he did not like the fact that people did that. All right. Now, what is the key to this passage, which he refers to uh, uh, of this strange rite? Else, and this is it. Listen to it. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? If the rite was a legitimate part of apostolic teaching, we would read the apostle writing, what shall you do which are baptized for the dead? Or what shall we do who are baptized for the dead? He would have included himself and others, the body, into the practice. But he says they. He separates himself and believers from this uh, practice for dead people. It's clear from Romans 9 and 10 that Paul was acutely conscious that there were many Jews who he loved, his own family, who um, remained outside the gospel fold. And he speaks of having a great heaviness and continual sorrow for uh, uh, their desires and that they have a desire for God, but they come about it the wrong way. Certainly there would have been some of the apostles' own extended family who had gone to their graves unbaptized. So if Paul uh, supported baptism for the dead, it is inexplicable that he would exclude himself from uh, what they were doing. He would say, why are we doing this if you don't believe in resurrection? Instead, he says, why are they doing that? Notice too that in the next verse, the apostle immediately contrasts the fringe group's activities of this baptizing for the dead 
with the broader context of who he is. Because the verse following verse 29 says, and why stand we in jeopardy at every hour? What advantage it me if the dead rise not? So in the, in the baptism for the dead reference, he calls it they. Why are they doing this? They don't believe in the resurrection, the resurrection and they're still doing this. And then he says, and why do we? So then he brings it back to the body of Christ. Additionally, and with the impersonal use of they, it's uncharacteristic because the whole chapter of 1 uh, uh, Corinthians 15 addresses, uh, Paul addresses the believers as we. He does it in verse 1, 2, 3, 11, 12, 14, 17, 31, 34, 36, 51, 58. And he says us in 3, 15, 9, uh, 30, 32, 49, 51, and 52. But when it comes to this weird practice of baptizing living people for dead, he says they. All right. Uh, it is those within the Christian populace who pretended to be Christians, but were denying the resurrection, and they were practicing also another thing that was unheard of that he was rebuking. And uh, it was like Paul was saying, these false teachers are inconsistent. They deny the resurrection, they're engaging in a practice, baptism for the dead, which, which should be automatically based on the hope of a resurrection, and they don't even embrace it. Now, this is exactly the understanding of the text held by a Christian writer, Tertullian. Now, Tertullian was around about 180 AD, and he makes this comment on 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Listen to what Tertullian said. He said, quote, his, meaning Paul's, only aim in alluding to it that it was that he might all the more firmly insist upon the resurrection of the body in proportion as they who were vainly baptized for the dead resorted to the practice from their belief of such a resurrection. And so from far from endorsing baptism for the dead, Paul associates it, uh, associates it with a group that was already identified as being in deep spiritual error. There is also perhaps another view of this strange and obscure passage. This is different than the one I just gave you. Christians were right and left being persecuted. They were being tortured, imprisoned, and even killed for their faith almost as soon as Jesus left the planet. And it was the belief or saying that the of 1 Corinthians 15, 29, that there were people who were being baptized and they were, and those people who were baptized are replacing those who had been martyred in the body of Christ. They were being baptized for the dead. So we have a person, Sean McCraney, he's in the body of Christ, uh, 35 AD, and Sean McCraney is murdered. Joe Anderson comes along and he's baptized for the dead Sean McCraney. And the reason this makes sense possibly is because the following verse, that Paul says, and why stand we in jeopardy at every hour? Meaning if you are, if, why do you baptize a man, Mr. Anderson here, you baptize him and only to come back up out of the water to be tortured and persecuted and killed. He stands in jeopardy at every hour if you don't believe in a resurrection. So that's another way to view that verse. And I think it's a good one. So, um, why didn't Paul, we'll wrap this up, refute the practice? First, Paul already, um, he associated the right with false teachers who denied the resurrection. So in this sense, there was no need for special uh, refutation. It would be like confronting a man who murdered a hundred babies and saying, I wanna talk to you about lying to your wife about what time you got in last night. 
okay? He murdered 100 babies. There was enough of it. These guys didn't even believe in the resurrection. They were a strange group anyway. So Paul didn't refute it on that sense. There was no need. Second, history has amply vindicated the uh, inspiration of Paul's judgment. The practice for baptism for the dead was never uh, a widespread practice. Even the Encyclopedia of Mormonism mentions that. Only a few isolated sects have ever practiced the strange thing. It included a heretical Theodotus Gnostic sect, the Marcionite sect of the second century, and the Ephrata Society, a Christian occult group in Pennsylvania in the 1700s, which could have been where Joseph also got some ideas from. These three groups have little in common with each other and even less with the Mormon teachings. So the claim that baptism for the dead was part of original Christianity and that Jesus gave it to us is an absolute fabrication of that small little reference to it. Third, Paul's uh, statements at the beginning of 1 Corinthians noted earlier that Christ sent him not to baptize, but to preach the gospel is a reminder that baptism does not, it is not indispensable to somebody who comes to know Christ. It's, uh, this is an indirect slap at the logic of baptism for the dead, which implies that baptism is indispensable for the soul of a person. In 1 Corinthians 8.10, the apostle refers to eating meat in the idol's temple without showing that it was wrong itself. And later in 1 Corinthians 10, we know that Paul says he doesn't like it. Paul did not address everything he talked about. He talked to Stoics. He didn't address that he didn't agree with them. He talked to a lot of people in scripture. And because he doesn't refute baptism for the dead, doesn't mean it was right. A final factor to consider in the LDS's version or use of baptism for the dead is that they describe the Book of Mormon as, quote, the fullness of the everlasting gospel. The fullness of the everlasting gospel. That's in Doctrine and Covenants 27.5. And yet the Book of Mormons makes not one mention of baptism for the dead. What we have here is Joseph Smith getting acceptance on one strange uh, thing that he did. And he said, man, they agreed with this. Let me try this one. Whoa, you like that one too? Let me give you another one. And they just kept escalating in their, uh, in their fervor of being insane. So he, he threw baptism in the dead well after the Book of Mormon, which supposedly has the fullness of the gospel in it. He threw that in and people bought it. It's the product of an imaginative, romantic, uh, uh, fanciful mind of Joseph Smith. And he passed it off because there was a reference to it, a vague reference to it in the Bible. It's not supported biblically, contextually, or historically, and it goes against what saves us, and that is faith. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. First time callers, please, LDS callers, if at all possible, and please turn your TV sets down so you can hear us. We have Gary in North Carolina, Cameron in California, Rochelle in Utah, and Chuck in West Valley, all first time callers waiting. We'll come to them after we look at this brief message. watching Heart of the Matter, a live weekly television program right here from the Mecca of Mormonism. We've been on the air for almost four years now. Now, 
we're a tax-exempt corporation, and we survive solely on your financial support. There are two ways that you can uh, help support this ministry financially, through the mail or through the Internet. Now, some people give as they can. And everything is a great blessing to us. We are so grateful for the support people have given over the years. We also invite anyone inclined to join with us in this fruitful ministry by becoming a partner. And this simply means you're in a position to contribute a certain amount annually, which greatly helps us with our planning. Be our friend, become our partner, but we do need your support if you're so inclined of the Lord and you have already given to the church. For more information, call 888-868-HOTM or 888-868-4686. Write to us at 314 South Redwood Road, Salt Lake City, 84104 or get on the internet www.hotm.tv for more information. God bless you all. Welcome, welcome. Now we come to the point everybody really cares about. No one cares about what I say for the first half hour. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we're going to Gary in North Carolina. Gary, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello, Sean. How you doing? Doing well, Gary. How are you? Pretty good. Um, uh, first off, I'd just like to Thank you for your uh, TV show being on YouTube. Uh, what for you, man? I used to be Mormon, and um, got a few questions for you. Yeah, uh, been on hold probably about twenty minutes, long enough to thank you some questions. Um, uh, so about a month ago, I was watching some of the shows you have on YouTube, and when I first saw them, uh, I was Mormon, and when I first saw them. I was kind of trying to come up with an argument to overturn you and overturn your decision. But about a week of thinking and just thinking long and hard, I realized I couldn't come up with one. <laughs> and there was no argument I could come up with one. And finally, you know, I just started thinking about it, thinking about it. I was like, about all the stuff you said about Joseph Smith. And I just come to determine that he wasn't a prophet. There's no possible way he could have been one. Now, there's one question I have for you. Um, I was baptized Mormon, uh, March 7th, 2008, I think. Okay. Um, should I get baptized again uh, because I'm no longer going to be Mormon again? Well, Gary, uh, listen, the, the thing about baptism is that uh, it's uh, something you want to evidence, a public pronouncement of your faith in Jesus Christ as the sole author and finisher of your salvation. So if you've come to that point and you want the world to know that you're going to be buried with him and you believe that he, he and he alone saved you, then I would absolutely recommend baptism, water baptism, because with it comes a lot of, of I mean, I hate to put it this way, but like spiritual blessings. You know, they, they really do. I wasn't baptized for many years after coming to know the Lord. I didn't even think about it. And we were actually doing the show and someone said, have you been baptized? And I had to say no. And I then went and I got baptized because I wanted to, to show my faith. And it really did change me in many ways. So I highly recommend it. Um, so what you're trying to say is the baptism that I got with the, the LDS church really didn't like put the stamp on it. Well, you know, uh, it probably didn't put a stamp on it because the purpose for doing it was very different than what the Bible says the reason we get baptized for. 
And we talked about baptism two weeks, and if, if you haven't seen that, watch that, because I think it will show you the differences between their baptism and what a Christian's baptism is. I'm actually in North Carolina, so I actually don't get to watch the show. Like, the only videos that are available is the one on YouTube. I think I've watched every single one. You can, go uh, to, uh, you can go to HOTM.TV and watch the shows, all of them. They're archived hour long, 200 of them. You have trouble oh. sleeping, do it. It's just like no dose. <laughs> Anything else, my friend? Uh, I probably have a million questions, but I probably... Um, how often does your show air? How often would I be able to call in? Every week, Tuesday night from 8 to 9 Utah, Mountain Time. Um, All right. Uh, Thanks for the. One more. Okay. Um, after the rapture happens, what do you think is going to happen to the to the church? I kind of have a little opinion on it, but what do you think is going to happen to the LDS church? No idea. I have absolutely no idea. Now, I kind of had an opinion on it, but it's kind of crazy. What? Well, well, why don't you share it since you've got me intrigued? All right. Um. Basically, uh, it's probably crazy. I've never really told anybody. But basically what they say is, let's just say Thomas S. Monson, they say he's basically filling in for Jesus, basically. And when Jesus comes, he's going to basically take the role. And let's just say if he came tomorrow, he would take the role, and Thomas S. Monson would step down, right? Yeah. Am I correct so far? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Now, what I think is basically when the rapture comes, there's not going to be a lot— There's Basically, all, no one on the earth is going to really know Jesus. Right. So the Antichrist is going to come, and he's going to proclaim himself to be Jesus. Yeah. And I think he's going to be put... And we all know the Mormons are very powerful. Yeah. And he's probably going to be put to the head, and everyone's going to worship him, and he's going to proclaim himself to be God, but he's not going to be. Yeah. And there's going to be no one around to tell him... You're not God, because there's no one who's still going to really know Jesus, so everyone's going to be fooled like they're being fooled now. Yeah. It's a really good hypothecation. I, I, I have no comment on because you, you never know anything, do you? But, no, you uh, really don't. Yeah. Thanks for sharing it with us, Gary. Um, I'll be calling back in next Tuesday. Okay, thanks. God bless you. Bye-bye. We're going to Cameron in California, first-time caller. Uh... He was on one. I don't see Cameron. Did we lose him? I think we did. We're going to go to Rochelle in somewhere in Utah. Rochelle, you're on Heart of the Matter. Rochelle? Yes. You're on the air. Am I? You are. Well, you're talking to somebody else right now. Well, that's because your TV's on. We have a delay. Oh, okay. Well, Sean, what, what I wanted to say is there's a scripture that I want to give you how it says, study to show thyself approved. Yeah. Okay. I just, I wanted, I wanted you to know that I, I praise God for your program and for you coming to the true light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I see God working in your life, how you used to get angry sometimes at the callers. I still do. I know you do, but it's like... You have come down so much, and I, I see God working in your life. Thanks, Michelle. And I just wanted to say you are a workman, showing yourself approved by God. I see it. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And God bless you, man. God bless you. Thanks for calling. Not a problem. Bye-bye. That's nice to hear, you know, because I know I, I do lose it sometimes, and I probably will again. So, uh, but... 
You know, that's very nice of Rochelle. We're going to Chuck in West Valley. What's up, Chuck? Uh, yes, Sean. Um, now I know why everybody says, Sean, Sean, are you there? Really? Uh, yeah, really. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, uh, Sean, I'm, I'm just calling uh, from the heart of Mormon land here. And uh, my uh, issue is uh, that I love your ministry. And, you know, I, I, I do mean to contribute to it, and I'm going to do that. Um, and your, uh, such as your talk tonight, which is a dialectic, I guess we would say, between uh, your beliefs and um, the, uh, you know, beliefs of the, the LDS beliefs. Yeah. I, I like this kind of thing. I love it. Good. And um, I, I just have to say, though, Sean, I, I kind of remain a committed atheist uh, in spite of everything and uh, don't really know if you have some idea there to, uh, to kind of move me in another direction. Well, you know, um, Chuck, I, I talk with a lot of atheists. I, don't, I kind of went through a time where I was a nihilist I didn't know if I believed anything at all, so I understand how uh -huh. you can, how you, where you are, and uh, but, you know, I was interviewed a week ago on this program. It was went a long, long time, and we talked about atheism. And I just want to ask you one, just something. I want to hear from your perspective, okay? Right, right. It's a very simple thing. Okay. Um, when I eat, I eat watermelon, and I have plums and vegetables, and I'll go to a Chinese restaurant and they'll use herbs and spices for meats and, and, and combinations, and then I can go to an Italian restaurant and they do it there for what foods they have. And I go to California and I come here to Utah and everybody has little bit different, amazing multiplicity of ingredients from this earth that the earth produces for us to enjoy. Now, why, where, how did that happen? Are you telling me in an uncreated world that this planet is filled with, we could, pro, we could not list the amount of ingredients that are mixed up and taste different and good and are beneficial to our body specifically, that that in and of itself, that just one single example, how did that happen? Please tell me, Chuck. Well, I can't tell you how that happened. Okay. Can. I can't eat, I can tell you what I believe now so on something just as basic as tonight you're gonna eat ice cream and so, so something as basic as that then take it and look at the flora and fauna the construction of the human body the cell at the microscopic level the the macro look at the universe which is expanding and the galaxies that are by the billions and 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 you look at a baby being born and you look at the maturation of a human and and people who say I'm an atheist, to me, it is unconscionable. Now, the Bible tells me, and I don't know if you'll believe this, but the Bible says you're really not. The Bible says that you really do believe, but there's something in you that says, no, I get more power out of not believing. The cynicism within me, it feels better to be that way instead of a believer. I've been burned by religion. I've been burned by life, something, but it, the Bible says you really do believe. So here's my challenge to you, to help you. You go to God, you say, I don't believe that McCraney guy. I don't believe pastors, I don't believe Mormons, I don't believe Buddhists, I don't believe any of it. I want you to open my eyes to truth. 
And if you're willing, Chuck, if you're really willing to accept what he shows you, Jesus said, pray that, that they will see, that their eyes will be open, their ears will hear. You go to this God and say, I don't even know if you're there. Sometimes I don't want to believe you're there, but you show me and you go in faith and I promise you, God is good and he will respond to your heartfelt sentiment. That's the best I can give you. Okay, I appreciate it, Sean. All right, my friend, you take care. Good luck, you too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. We have Joy in Salt Lake City, first-time caller. Joy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello? Hey, Joy, you have, you have to turn your TV down. <laughs> All right, we're going to Cheryl in Orem, first-time caller. Cheryl, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Um, we saw you at your 200 show. Oh. And um, I, I have a question for you. I have a friend, my husband, I have a friend that was our, is our maintenance man at our apartment complex. And he, we led him to the Lord. He's a Mormon. We led him to the Lord. And um, he's been a Christian about for three months. Okay. And um, we, we've been walking with him, trying to disciple him. And he's come back and forth. And the Mormon church is trying to get his, their hold on him still. Yeah. And they've been trying everything they can. First, they, they were, they didn't like because he accepted Jesus Christ, and they were kind of negative on him. And now they know that they're kind of losing him, and they're trying everything to get him. Yeah. And the last thing that happened is he's trying to, now the church wants to make him so he goes and talks to the people that, um, are kind of on the fence of Mormonism. Yeah. And he's doing it. And I don't understand why someone that has faith in Jesus Christ would want to do that. When's he doing it? Pardon? When is he doing it? When is he doing it? Do you know? I don't know when he's doing it, but I know that he's, that's his. Well, do me a favor. Do, do me that. a favor. Uh, have him set up the appointment for Sunday, Monday, or Tuesday day, and I'll go and I'll go with him. Okay, I'll let him know. So there, there's the first offer. All right, so email me and tell me, and I'll see if I can work it out in my schedule, and I'll go with him. The second thing uh, is, um, Cheryl, is you have to understand, he uh, is coming out of, of a faith where he has been indoctrinated in ways he doesn't even understand. And so it's part of him, and, and it's normal for him to, to question and go back. You let him. The best okay. advice you could probably give him is this. You don't, don't tell him the fear. You say, you go, and you explore what they have to say. Just do me a favor. Take it to God beforehand in prayer and say, Lord, please open my eyes. I've asked you to be in my heart. Open my eyes and let me hear what they have to say. He may go back and join, but bottom line, if he has the Spirit of God in him, he will in time understand what they are, and he'll leave for good. The process is up and down, and we do go back and forth, and it's very normal, and it takes a long time to come out from all those teachings. But God will be faithful in leading them out through His Spirit if we allow that and we don't fear. So I would say let Him go. I will be more than happy to go, and, and if He wants support and present questions to His uh, interviewees and uh, interviewers. And so I put that on the table, but bottom line he is going to go through a bunch of cycles, and all of it takes time for him to get out. 
Yeah, he already has, like, yeah. three different cycles already. He'll, he'll be cycling a long time. He'll ride around the world on that cycle before he's done. <laughs> but he'll come okay. out. Okay. I just needed a clearer perspective of that. Okay, good. Thanks, Cheryl. Okay. God Thank bless. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. We're going to Cameron in California, first-time caller. Cameron, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how's it going? Good, you? Very good. I, you probably don't remember me, but I seen you when you were at Ex-Mormons for Jesus uh, a few months ago. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you did a great job, and you're doing a good job now. Thanks. And, and I just have a kind of a, it's kind of a question, it's kind of like a comment. Okay. But um, you know how uh, the Mormons will call themselves Christians, and then, you know, they make a big deal if we don't call them Christians. Um, well, in the Bible it says that we're saints, and these are the last days. So how would they feel as us as Christians if we'd call ourselves LDS because of, you know, <laughs> what I mean by that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they totally frown on it, and I just was wondering what you thought about that. You know, we've, ta we've talked about uh, that, and it, Cameron, it's a really great insight, because I'll tell you right now, if you stood up and said, I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, and I'm a Latter-day Saint, you'll have a bevy of attorneys uh, suing you for intellectual property right uh, damage. You cannot use anything that they hold as proprietary, but they want to take a title that is earned by faith and apply it to themselves willy-nilly. So you make a really good point. Wow. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Anything All else, right, my friend? I'm sorry? Anything else? Uh, no, thank you. Hey, thanks for watching, Cameron. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, bye-bye. We're going to try Joy again in Salt Lake City. First-time caller. Joy, you're on the air. Hi, is this Sean? This is. Hi, Sean. They had my name up there before me. Oh. Um, I wanted to ask you a real quick question. I'm doing my genealogy right now, and the church has uh, all my information. And uh, they, if they do, like, the baptism for the dead, which I'm a little leery, I don't want them doing that, would that mean anything? My family's all Catholic. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, you know, it means so nothing. So even if we're Catholic or, well, I'm not Catholic anymore. I'm just a, I'm a Christian. Yeah. So, uh, so if they do that and take the names, because he put it all on this little disc or something, and he said that, uh, well, I'm just going to hold this information for you until, you know, you get your own little disc and put all the information on. Yeah. And I thought, you know, well, they're going to do baptism for the dead, and my grandma would turn over in a grave. <laughs> so that doesn't mean anything, right? No, it has absolutely, I believe it has no, uh, well, all it means is your family has provided them names to keep their members busy and paying tithing. And to some people, that is an affront. And like the Jewish Holocaust victims, they have really put up a fight against the Mormon church using the Holocaust victims' names who died because of their faith. And yeah. so they stopped that. I wish every uh, Christian religion would step up and say, we do not want you using our relatives' names to do your uh, hocus-pocus. But, uh, you know, I, I don't believe it has any merit. They can baptize. Uh, I don't think they're going to baptize well, me post-mortem. It's, it's, it's like a little uh, eerie to me. It is eerie, yeah. Uh, well, but your grandma's I, not going to turn over in her grave. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you a question. You said that you were, did your mission in Pennsylvania. Where did you do it in Pennsylvania? Uh, Harrisburg area. Oh, Harrisburg. I'm from Philadelphia area, and uh, I was a Mormon at one time for wow. about um, 
a year, but I got excommunicated. <laughs> then I moved out here, and I've well, been here about five or six years. I think I'm telling too much information. They're going to know who I am because I'm doing my genealogy right now. Well, and I've been here five years, and my sisters keep telling me to do it, so I finally went to do it, and um, now I was concerned about the baptism for the dead. So it doesn't hey, matter anyway. Joy, I know you have a lot of other calls. But, joy, so joy, it wouldn't matter if they did that. We're still Christian. My grandparents are still Christian. All absolutely. All the people, and they're still going to be with the Lord. Absolutely, Joy. And that's all I want to know. Oh, and thanks. you know what? Keep up the good work. You are so smart. Uh, you I, know so much. I am not, Joy. Yes, you are. The Lord made you that way. That's right. Well, whatever I have, it's from him. Thanks that's so right. much, Joy. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. We have a question. I'm going to come to Brett in West Jordan in a second. Uh, can a person take the LDS sacrament while in prison? I actually called the LDS Church Priesthood Department and got an answer from one Sister Barbara. Felons cannot be members of the LDS Church, baptized or rebaptized, until they are out of prison and off probation. They therefore cannot take the LDS sacrament while in prison because it is not administered there. Because taking the LDS sacrament is a renewal of baptismal covenants, there would be no purpose for a felon to take the LDS sacrament until they have been baptized or rebaptized, and that can't happen until their parole is completed. You know, it's just amazing. I think there is probably no place on earth more important for someone to take communion than prison. You know, no place on earth more important for them to remember what Jesus did for them and to help them not let that environment just tear them apart. And the LDS refrain from giving felons, uh, and I guess I, I would suspect maybe even third degree, second degree misdemeanor people who are in prison too. I don't know. But in terms of felons, that's it. Uh, we'll go to Brett, uh, Brett in West Jordan on line three. Brett, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, uh, Sean. Hi, Brett. Hey, um, I just had a quick question where we were talking about the baptism for the dead. If you've ever run across uh, in Alma 34, 33, where they talk about this time in your life is uh, you shouldn't procrastinate and that yeah. you don't do everything, then the devil seals you his and there's no way that you can do anything after this life. Yeah, it's a really good point, Brett. I'm glad you brought it up. And what he's saying is the Book of Mormon teaches Pretty much traditional Christian uh, doctrine. There's a few twists in there, uh, but pretty much, and what it teaches is, hey, look it, now is the time when you're alive. If you bypass this, uh, it's over. There's no other post-mortem work that can be done. You're going to meet your judge, and you're at the, it's the day of your salvation. And so that, what Brett is saying is that the Book of Mormon teaches this. How come now? And what it is, it's the evolution of Joseph Smith's mind and doctrines uh, playing a part and people buying into it. Great comment, Brett. Yeah, so uh, they always say, you know, the, uh, they trust the Bible as far as it's translated correctly. Uh, what, what do they take uh, out of the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine and Covenants? Which one would be their, you know, would stand? On, which one's higher? Oh, they hold them the same. They say the Book of Mormon is the most correct book on the face of the earth. Uh, Joseph Smith said that. Uh, Doctrine and Covenants, they hold as scripture, so they hold it as up to this, kind of the same, but they really do love uh, the Book of Mormon. Okay. Hey, thanks for the call. Yeah, thank you. Okay, bye. Uh, Taylor S. wanted to ask something about backsliding. He 
or she writes, is it possible for a Christian to lose their salvation? Uh, what if someone was saved and were active Christian for years, then one day they just leave the church and Jesus behind for an example, he, he or she says, never goes to church, never reads the Bible, becomes a drunk. Are we once saved, always saved? And, uh, you know, you have to ask yourself this question. What is it that saves us in the first place? Okay, that's the first question to ask. What is it that saves me, a wretch, a sinner, in the first place? And that would be my faith on him who did what I couldn't do, his shed blood. And by that faith, I am given the grace of God and I am saved. If I am not saved by my righteousness, how can I be unsaved by my unrighteousness? That being said, too, aren't even if I am going to church and not being a drunk and am reading the Bible, aren't I still going to commit sin? Absolutely. And so it's not my righteousness and faithfulness. It's Jesus' righteousness and faithfulness and my faith on him that saves me. All that being said, the idea behind the Christian then is to allow God who now lives in them work with our sinful natures and help us overcome those aspects of our life. Show me somebody who says, yeah, I'm a Christian. I was saved when I was 13. When a Bible, Bible uh, call, I mean, uh, altar call, it was great. Dude, man, that chick's so hot. My wife will never find out about her. And uh, ah, I'm going to kill that kid. And yeah, forget it. You know, the, the, the desire for righteous living follows them that believe. And so God, in his spirit, he works with us. I've never met a Christian who said, I'm a Christian, I can say, I can sin like I want. Never. I always find people who are humble, who know their weaknesses and failures, but turn to the Lord in faith and say, Lord, save me, increase my faith. And that is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can somebody lose their salvation once they have received it? I don't believe they lose it. I believe they walk from it. And once they have walked from what Jesus has given them, they've walked for good. It's not the up and down of our lives being righteous, unrighteous, righteous, unrighteous, where we lose or get lost or unsaved. It's turning and saying, God, I hate you. I know you exist. I know I was saved by your son, but I hate you and I want nothing to do with you. That person can go unsaved and boom, they walk away for good. There's no coming back according to what scripture says. But in terms of us just trying and failing, try, no, once saved, always saved, by grace, through faith. Let's go to Todd in Salt Lake City, first time caller. We've only got one minute left, Todd, go for it. Okay. You're on the air. Hi, Sean, this Hi. is Todd in Salt Lake. Um, I was just wondering about the baptism. What the, what's the baptism of fire I hear about? There's supposed to be a baptism by water and fire. Great question. We covered okay. that. Uh, Jesus, John said, hey, man, I come baptizing with water. But there yeah. is one whose shoes I'm not worthy to even tie. He's coming and he's baptizing with fire. That is the Holy Spirit. And that is yeah. when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, comes in you, and you are saved. That is when Jesus moves in by virtue of his Holy Spirit and you are born again. That is the baptism by fire. Some okay. religions say it has more to it. Pentecostals say it means speaking in tongues as a result. I don't necessarily yeah. believe that. But that is the baptism by fire. The Holy Ghost that comes in, moves in, makes a permanent home in your life. All right. Thank you. Hey, great call. Thanks, Todd.
We're leaving Hernando and Sunset, first-time caller, Gary in Salt Lake City, and the line's full. We're sorry. We're going to try to get more to your calls. But in the meantime, go to the Lord, man. Just say, help me. Save the wretch that I am. Show yourself. Give me vision. Give me ears. See you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm going to break. I'm going to break my. I'm gonna break my rusty cage and run I'm gonna break I'm gonna break my Gonna break my rusty cage and run I'm gonna break I'm gonna break my Gonna break my rusty cage and run I'm gonna break I'm gonna break my Rusty King